The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's from the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine. Thank you. Thank you. I'm actually about to escape from my this, the, this sling right. holding my arm. <laughs> I've got permission from the physical therapist that I can re begin to function without it. Um, although he still recommends that I, I travel, uh, in, especially air travel with it. So I think that's a, a milestone in my recovery, and I thank all of you who have prayed for me. Uh, I know those prayers have made all the difference. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's fine. All right, well, Father, let's start tonight with a question concerning the active and passive will of God as it pertains to Vatican II. So this viewer says he's been having an argument about God's will as far as it concerns Vatican II and the Novus Ordo Mass. He, uh, the person with which he is arguing is a Novus Ordo, and they believe that because God permitted the Council to take place and the new Mass to be introduced, they must have been in God's plan all along and should therefore be embraced by all Catholics. The, uh, she seems to believe that whatever happens, whether it is a result of our disobedience or of God's own desire, must be welcomed since it reflects God's will. So, Father, could you please explain the difference between the active will of God and the passive or permissive will of God? Well, I'll try, but uh, it sounds as though the, the lady that he's uh, having this discussion with is a Muslim. Because Muslims believe in kismet uh, they believe that uh, God's will, whatever it may be, even though God may contradict himself, uh, in, 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 you know, God is, uh, is not intellect, uh, he's pure will in Islam, you know. <clears throat> and so whatever God wills is necessarily good, even though he may himself uh, condemn it uh, at one turn, then he will approve it in the next in Islam. So um, it seems strange to hear that uh, this poor woman say that uh, we must actually uh, embrace, I guess, um, God's will, even though very terrible, evil things happen. It sounds as though she's saying that God can will evil and that we should therefore uh, embrace it uh, because, God's, because God allows it. But um, I, I hope I'm not misinterpreting what she's saying, but it sounds as though that's what she's... That's so. a logical interpretation of what she's saying there. <clears throat> and um, because um, evil, in a sense, is part of God's plan, and that God allows it, that God tolerates it, and only for the sake of bringing greater good out of it than would happen otherwise. That even the evil must be embraced. And this is, well, I would have to say this is heretical, <laughs> you know. Um, 
Um, St. Paul says it is not permissible to do evil so that good may result from it. If it is not permissible for us, it's certainly not permissible for God, who is all good. And uh, But does God tolerate evil? Yes, he does. Does he directly will evil? No. He allows for it because he can overcome it, ultimately, in the end. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> as far as the evils of Vatican II <clears throat> and the, the aftermath, including the sexual abuse crisis going on right now. It, it's all following from Vatican II. Um, God does not will these evil things, okay? He will tolerate them. This is something that God will endure, uh, that God will allow rather than actually uh, will and foment. God does not do evil. So... Um, the um, the fact is, these things, as evil, are contrary to God's will. I mean, the very nature of sin is to disobey the will of God. <clears throat> God does not will our disobedience to his will. Otherwise, if he did, he would be contradicting himself and his goodness. <clears throat> so uh, I think we have to see that Vatican II and the evils thereof, and following therefrom, are, uh, as our writer says, I guess you could say the passive will of God. In some cases, one hears the resigned will of God as opposed to the designed will of God. Um, that God tolerates and allows, but only because ultimately he will bring from it a greater good. Um, <clears throat> Nonetheless, that is not something which we cannot still applaud the evil <laughs> or approve the evil, even though we know ultimately God will bring greater good from it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, even abortions. God tolerates abortions. We cannot applaud these things. <clears throat> we cannot embrace, uh, let alone endure, these evils, even though we have confidence that God will bring the great, ultimately the greater good and more souls will be saved ultimately because of them, or in spite of them, I guess I should say, by the will of God, uh, they still remain evils and they still remain things that we should absolutely oppose, including the new mass. Right? God allows satanic masses too. <clears throat> we cannot embrace these things, we cannot applaud these things, we cannot endure these things, any more than necessary. Otherwise, we are consenting to these things and responsible for them to the extent that we uh, that we not only approve them, but the, the extent that we even tolerate them unnecessarily. Sure. So I, I think we have a serious lack of understanding of the faith here. Whoever wrote this understands the difference between the design, the designed will of God, and the resigned will of God, the uh, the active will of God, as he puts it, and the passive will of God. Sure. Yep. All right. Well, then, Father, another email from a viewer who says, I have been following your explanation of the encyclical of Pope Pius X, Pascendi Dominici Grigis, and he says, uh, I've also been following the current crisis in the Church exposed by Archbishop Vigano, which you have discussed concerning the destruction of the priesthood and the Church with the revolution of the Vatican II Popes and now with Francis. But he asked, Father, can you discuss the oath against modernism, since this is the summary of the encyclical? 
the oath against modernism, which was actually imposed with Antistica Nostro, I believe, uh, in 1910, <clears throat> following the encyclical of 1907, uh, Medici uh was St. Pius X's practical way of trying to enforce the Church's prohibition against modernism. <clears throat> you know, the first two-thirds of the encyclical, Pashendi, talks about the mentality of the modernist. Uh, actually, talks about modernists as, as being split personalities. He gives seven or eight different mindsets within the same modernist, the same individual modernist. The modernist as a theologian, the modernist as a believer, the modernist as a philosopher. And within that same individual, there are contradictions from one to the other. A, a modernist can affirm as a believer what he denies as a historian, just flatly denies. <clears throat> so the modernist is actually intellectually, well, crazy. <clears throat> uh, I understand that um, Aristotle, well, he's quoted as saying, if someone denies the principle of non-contradiction, uh, treat him like a vegetable. Really. But but even that says too little, because a vegetable is not anti-rational. But one who denies the principle of non-contradiction is anti-rational, not just irrational. So a modernist is actually anti-rational. And... Um, <clears throat> St. Pius X spends about two-thirds of his encyclical explaining the consequences of this anti-rationality, and every step of the way applies to Francis. We haven't actually gotten to that yet in our considerations. Going down point by point by point, we've just, we've just actually uh, brought up a few of the more egregious examples that you know, refer to Francis's idea of a synodal church, which is exactly what the modernists want created, right? And a couple of other things that St. Pius X points out in the encyclical that apply very obviously to Francis, but there are many other things in the encyclical we haven't talked about yet, uh, that as far as they apply to Francis. For example, you know, Francis um, said that um, when, when our Lord stayed behind in Jerusalem, when he was 12 years old and allowed Blessed Mother and St. Joseph to make their way back to Nazareth, back to Galilee, they discovered after a day's travel that he was not in the company. They spent another day traveling back to Jerusalem. On the third day, they found him in the temple. Uh, Francis makes this remark about how, you know, the child Jesus was in big trouble and he had a lot of explaining to do because he... You know, to Mary and Joseph were really upset that he would do this. Well, here's an example of Francis just talking about, a, you know, like a normal, uh, just mundane mother and father and a child who was bad, and this, this is how they should react. This is how you would ordinarily expect them to react. Nothing, nothing supernatural about this. Nothing even that applies to the gospel about this. This is just Francis musing, as though... Essentially, this is just a 12-year-old boy in trouble with his mom and dad. And uh, later on, Francis also pointed out that the Blessed Mother was furious with God and, and really resentful toward God the Father for deceiving her into agreeing to be the mother of Jesus. 
because when his body was taken down as a corpse on the cross, uh, Mary felt that God the Father had deceived her by saying of his kingdom there would be no end. And here he was, very dead in her arms. <clears throat> but she maintained her control over that. She wanted to lash out at God the Father, but she didn't, even though she felt that he had lied to her. You know, here, here again is a, is a prime example of a man who just talks about <clears throat> the Blessed Mother and uh, our Lord, the Savior of the world, as though they were just ordinary folks, you know, nothing special about them, having just normal reactions, nothing supernatural about their thoughts. And um, one of the points that St. Pius X makes about Immodernists is that they reduce the, the person of our Lord, you know, to just a mere man, basically, the thoughts and the reactions of just a mere, a mere man with a religious experience that was kind of extraordinary, but that's, that's all that was extraordinary about him. And uh, what came after his death was that he, his memory was somehow disfigured into the faith you and I have. Um, so St. Pius X actually states in the encyclical that this is a characteristic uh, of the modernists to speak exactly as Francis speaks. Uh, now, the reason I'm pointing this out is that three years later, Pope St. Pius X wanted to put into effect what he stated in the latter one-third of that encyclical. <clears throat> in the last third of the encyclical, Ascendi, is a series of very practical statements about how the Church must defend herself against the modernists. And he instituted uh, a committees of vigilance in every diocese. Uh, of uh, The bishop is, is supposed to appoint certain very qualified and, and devout priests whose identities are to become secret, but they are to be on the lookout in their own dioceses for any trace of modernism. And to report that back to the bishop. And the bishop is meant to meet with those priests every month to keep his finger on the pulse of the faith in the diocese to ward off any trace of modernism among the clergy. And, you know, the bishops are meant to make their ad limina visitations and, and personally deliver it to the pope every so many years as, and a report on the state of the faith in their dioceses. So that's how closely St. Pius X thought this must be, moder must, be, uh, uh, must be monitored. He thought this was such a dangerous, dangerous thing. <clears throat> well, the oath against modernism was one of the means that he, he meant to, to uh, ward off the contagion of modernism. St. Pius, by the way, by the way also, uh, it's kind of interesting, I think, that when Pope Pius XII was elected, um, you know, about 50 years later, uh, he maintained those committees of vigilance that St. Pius X had, had ordered to uh, safeguard the, uh, the traces of modernism which manifested themselves in all the dioceses of the church around the world. Pope Pius XII gave them another task, not only were they, uh, from then on, to keep an eye out for modernism? But Pius XII said they had to watch the modesty. They had to watch the immodesty of the Catholic people and the way they dressed. <clears throat> that was, in Pope Pius XII's estimation, as serious a problem as modernism itself, the immodesty and dress of the Catholic people. Wow. 
And we see what has become a both now in the modern church, immodesty and modernism. They really do go together, you know. Uh, modernism is simply a means of restoring paganism within the church. It's, it's kind of the religious equivalent of Marxism. And it's interesting to see the parables between, parallels between modernism and Marxism. Um, they're both messianic. They both say ultimately this is the, it's, going to, it's necessarily going to grow into a one world, right, society, um, all united, right? The worker's paradise for Marx and the one world, you know, uh, uh, global community for the modernist. And um, they're, they're both uh, fundamentally evolutionist and evolutionary in their, in their uh, methodology. And anyway, it's an interesting study to see. In 1907, Pope Pius X warned against modernism attacking the church from within. And ten years later, Our Lady appeared at Fatima and warned about the errors of Russia spreading throughout the world. This is no coincidence. Marxism, modernism, they're, they're bedfellows. Uh, in fact, they're probably more than that, right? Worse than that. But anyway, that's another, another show, isn't it? <clears throat> anyway, St. Pius X, then three years later, wanted to institute this oath so that every member of the clergy would have to take this oath multiple times, that uh, before a man was admitted to the subdiaconate, the first of the major orders, he would have to kneel before the open tabernacle and put his hand on the Gospels and swear to his faith, and that he rejects the errors of the modernist in professing the true faith. And before a man would be ordained a priest, he had to swear again, before he could be given the right to represent the church in teaching in the name of the church, in, in seminaries and in Catholic universities, even preaching, uh, he would have to swear again to the integrity of his faith and condemning the errors of the modernist. St. Pius X was doing everything he could possibly, possibly do to protect the church against this this. <clears throat> this contagion. I mean, it was a, it was, it was an, it, it, he saw it as the greatest threat to the church that she had ever faced. That's what he says, right? The synthesis of all errors against the faith. <clears throat> he saw it as the, uh, kind of the, the virus uh, of, uh, of apostasy. And um, so this uh, oath against modernism was an attempt to make sure that no one could ever enter the clergy of the church who held the, the errors of modernism. Um, the fact that modernists, unfortunately, lie, the fact, though, that modernists do not even see themselves as lying because they don't actually believe in truth. They may use the word, but they don't define it the same way you and I do. St. <clears throat> Pius X realized the limitations of his oath, because he's dealing with people who are essentially lying to God, lying to themselves, and lying to the world. They don't believe in the principle of non-contradiction. They are 
they are out of their minds. They're insane when it comes to spiritual matters. That they can affirm in one, with, in, in one identity what they can deny in another. <clears throat> they can climb into the pulpit and affirm the existence of God and then stand at a lectern at a university and absolutely deny his existence. Okay? Uh, with, with equal fervor. Okay? Uh, so St. Pius X was no fool and he understood the limitations of the power of an oath when administered to a modernist but he was trying what was humanly possible. <clears throat> and sure enough, uh, generations came uh, of priests, and when the time came for Paul VI, <clears throat> he was the one who uh, did away with the oath against modernism. He simply uh, suppressed it. Uh, it, had, it had been in effect from 1910 till almost 1970, so about 60 years, almost. And Paul VI simply announced, this is no longer needed. And with that, he crushed it. And from that, from that time on, there was no more oath against modernism. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, it coincided with Vatican II. No sooner has Vatican II finished than the oath against modernism was suppressed. So that means that all that, that these dear uh, uh, pederists who are now in the clergy, in the episcopacy, who are ordained and subsequently, um, you know, consecrated as novus ordo bishops, who are doing these evil acts or enabling them and covering them up, they all follow in the aftermath and in the mold of Vatican II. But they also had the suppression of the oath against modernism. So um, I don't know if that actually answers the question. Maybe it answers a lot more than uh, answers says a lot more without answering the question that the poor questioner wanted to hear. But yeah, that's that, that's right, Father. Um, I you know you mentioned the uh, the non contradiction and and that that does sound so much like Francis who uh, just the other day or just recently came out and, and said that uh, you know homosexuals do not belong in the priesthood and all that and that in direct opposition to the numerous numerous times where he's spoken in favor of homosexuals and said how th this is okay and and all of that and it just seems that this happens almost on a daily basis it seems like he'll say whatever is, is I mean this is like the quintessential politician He'll say whatever, you know, uh, serves the purpose at any given moment. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I mean, he, he even said at the same time, yes, I knew a bishop once who said that he had several homosexuals in his diocese, and it's like, what planet is he talking about here? I mean, is he unaware of everything that's going on <laughs> around him? He knew a bishop once who said he had several homosexuals in his diocese, and oh, this was, this was shocking. Um, you know, Tom, it's very hard to take seriously uh, what he says. I mean, even when he comes out with something that sounds vaguely, vaguely Catholic, it is so weak and limp and almost detached from reality that, um, you know, it, it just it sounds completely insincere. Sure. And he's just saying it for the benefit of the gullible. And those who are desperately trying to hear something Catholic coming from his mouth, something they could interpret as being a Catholic statement. Um, but I, I'm afraid he, he is a deceiver.
Father, there is a, a follow-up question here concerning the Oath Against Modernism, and he asks if the encyclical by Pope Pius X and the Oath Against Modernism, is that binding on successive popes? So how can a succeeding pope abolish the governing laws of the church formulated in an encyclical by his predecessor? Well, encyclicals are not necessarily infallible. Uh, there are many encyclicals that are issued that are not, never claimed to be infallible. Uh, they are not issued ex cathedra, necessarily. Um, and in this case, when you have a, an oath against modernism, it is a disciplinary decree, and disciplinary decrees can be changed. Um, all popes have equal authority insofar as they are true popes, mm-hmm. right? Um, nonetheless, I mean, if you have a disciplinary decree that is there for the protection of the Church, and you have a, a, an enemy of the church who wants to dismantle these protections, then what he's doing is actually a criminal act. Right? Um, I, consider Pope, I consider Paul VI's suppression of the oath against modernism as a clear declaration that he is the chief of the modernists, who now has the power to... Um, basically disarm the church and to open the floodgates to the modernists. And this is what we see, right? The traitor. Right? I mean, Judas had the power to go to, the, to make a deal with the Sanhedrin and to follow through on it. Right? Our Lord, even at the Last Supper, knew what Judas was about to do. And this gets back to what our first questioner was asking about, in a a sense, really, in a way, that our Lord made one last appeal to Judas, right? In dipping the unleavened bread into the wine sauce, the blood-red sauce, and reaching it to Judas, dripping with that blood-red sauce, right? You still, on the Shroud of Turin, Dr. Jackson says, you see the drip marks of that as it has reached across the table to Judas, right? One last appeal, as it were, to him. And you know what the gospel says? Judas took the morsel that our Lord offered him, and then the devil entered him. He became possessed at that point. The evil was complete at that point. It was as though our Lord was saying, look, whatever you do now, it's just going to be adding evil to evil. So what you do, do quickly, at least, at least uh, get this evil over with that you've decided. Um, but again, that wasn't our Lord approving it, you know. He wasn't saying, well, Judas, hurry up, let's, you know. He wasn't approving it. He was just trying to actually minimize the evil by, um, by saying, what you do, do it quickly, get it over with, put an end to it as soon as you can. Um, so, um, anyway, that would be the act of a, of a, of a would-be pontiff, who uh, uses that position to betray the church and betray Christ. And that's what happened to the Vatican II. Sure. And has been happening since then, actually. Speaking of Vatican II, Father, can its rotten fruits be the result of God withholding his graces to the church because of diabolical disorientation and apostasy of the church hierarchy, which Our Lady revealed in the 1917 Fatima apparitions? and the refusal of the popes to reveal the third secret and the consecration by specific mention of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary by all the bishops in union with the Pope. 
Well, that's a very good question, and God's withholding of graces can really be the result of our lack of cooperation with those graces. And so, I mean, it is a fact that there were those who tried to spread the message of Fatima to get people to stop sinning, have devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and uh, tried to, uh, you know, warn the, the, the church especially and the world about the evils that were pending. Um, but for the most part, those efforts fell short. And there was a lot of opposition. I mean, one of the, one of the things that our, our Lord demanded through Our Lady was that Russia be consecrated to her Immaculate Heart. And according to the command of our Lord, actually, in 1929, that Russia be consecrated by the entire hierarchy together, the Pope with all of the bishops in the world. And the resistance to that certainly, certainly made the difference that were graces withheld or is it that we hardened our hearts against it? Did the hierarchy harden its heart against it? I mean, the question that I have, that as, as I think anyway, for what it's worth, is that Pope Pius XI, who was actually a courageous Pope, I mean, here's a man who has the apostolic nuncio to Poland in 1920, stood with the people of Warsaw against the invading Soviet armies. And, of all, you know, the diplomats of the, all the other countries of the free world abandoned Poland to its fate. They thought it was lost, you know. But not uh, Achille, Achille Cardinal Ratti. He got special permission from uh, Pope Benedict XV to stand with the Polish people. And for the nine days from August 6th to August 15th, the Feast of the Assumption, he led the Eucharistic processions with all the peoples of the Catholic people of Warsaw up and down and through the streets of Warsaw, begging for the mercy of God. And uh, this is where the, 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 the Polish army, so-called, which barely, I mean, it sounds like Valley Forge all over again. I mean, they had rakes and hoes and farm implements to fight with, and many of them didn't even have shoes or, you know, just basic necessities. But under the generalship of Pilsudski, and interestingly enough, uh, under one of the relatives of our own Father Skirki, Father Martin Skirki, who was one of the four generals, uh, one of the three under Pilsudski, they accomplished what we know as the miracle of the... Um, and the terrible... See, this is, this is what old age does to you. Uh, the... the uh, the, the river flowing outside of uh, Warsaw. Help me out here. I'm okay. Yeah, isn't that terrible? Um, any, anyway, I'm getting it mixed up with something from Lithuania. <laughs> that sounds crazy, but we'll 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 get the story on this. <laughs> but uh, you know, look it up. Look up Pilsudski, P-I-L-S-U-D-S-K-I, and um, the the name will will come to me uh, when the uh, when the brain cells come together in the proper order here. But um, the fact is that this great deliverance was got, and, 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 and Eastern Europe was saved for about 20 years from the domination of the communist, the hammer and sickle, because of the, the courage of the, uh, oh, uh, the, it's, it's the miracle of the Vistula, I think. Yeah, the miracle of the Vistula. Yeah. And, um, 
you know, the, the Polish people stood alone, but not entirely alone. I mean, they had uh, the Apostolic Nuncio uh, standing with them and the Blessed Sacrament, and they routed the invading Bolshevik army. And um, this was Saint Pius, This was Pope Pius XI. Within two years, he was elected the next Pope, Pius XI. And he was the one named by Our Lady of Fatima, who was supposed to actually make the consecration of uh, Russia to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart. In 1929, he didn't do it. In 1932, uh, the warning was given by our Lord um, of the disaster that befell um, the King Louis XVI when he failed to consecrate France to the Sacred Heart of Jesus years before, and the French Revolution swept away, you know, essentially swept away Catholic France. A very dire warning, and yet still the consecration wasn't made. And to this day, I mean, the Catholic people are wondering, why not? Why did Pope Pius XI not make the, the consecration? I believe it's because there were so many modernists at that point in the, in the episcopacy that they blocked it. They blocked that consecration. But you know, that doesn't really answer the question of why, why didn't Pope Pius, if, if that's true, if that was the problem, the modernists in the hierarchy <clears throat> blocking the consecration and refusing to cooperate, that doesn't explain why Pope Pius XI would not have just gathered the bishops who were still Catholic and made the consecration in spite of the modernist bishops. That's a, a question I can't answer. Why was there that failure? But there was. It wasn't done. It was never done. And um, so somewhere along the line, Tom, there had to be a just a failure to cooperate with the grace that God was given. Now this questioner asked, does God withhold those graces? Well, a, a failure to cooperate with grace can result in that, that God does withhold graces too. I cannot say that God was withholding the graces necessary, though, with, uh, you know, and, and, and then all of these disasters that followed with Vatican II and the New Mass were a result of God withholding the graces. I don't know that. But one thing I think we all have to admit is that the graces that God was giving to make the consecration met with resistance, and even in those who were not willfully resisting, it met with lack of cooperation, and there are terrible consequences that follow in resisting the grace of God. Definitely. And in failing to cooperate with Him. Father, let's get to one last email, if we could. How was Humanae Vitae a restatement of previous church teaching, and how was it different than previous church teaching? Well, Humanae Vitae followed a, a, a summoning of Paul VI. Paul VI called about I think it was about, it was about 60 leading moral theologians of the church. It might have been more, but for some reason it comes to mind uh, 60 or so. From around the world to, to um, discuss the issue of artificial contraception. You know, is it moral? Is it intrinsically evil? Can it be justified under any circumstances? And so on. And uh, I understand that two-thirds of these men came back within a week and announced their deliberations uh, 
uh, they found that artificial contraception was indeed moral. Um, that it was not intrinsically evil. I don't know if they actually said it was always justifiable or it needed certain circumstances to be justified. I don't recall. But anyway, subsequently, uh, Paul VI issued the encyclical Humanae Vitae of human life, and he said that artificial contraception is intrinsically evil. And this was, this was true. Uh, what departed from the standard practice of the church, though, was to state clearly the reason why it was intrinsically evil. And this left that encyclical open to interpretation and basically nullification. Because the church always said that the primary essential purpose of marriage, and actually the primary essential purpose of the, the marriage act, is to give life. Not that it always does give life or always must give life, but the fact is that it, that is God's primary essential purpose for creating it in the first place and giving us these powers uh, to give life. So every, every act of copulation, um, human copulation, must be at least open to that possibility of God's pr primary purpose. And inevitably, there are going to be times when, uh, you know, uh, there are those who can't give life for one reason or another. There are marriages of those who are too old, you know, don't no longer have those powers because of age. But they can still fulfill the secondary essential purpose of mutual comfort, care for each other, helping each other sanctify themselves and come to everlasting life in heaven. That is the secondary essential purpose of marriage. The, 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 the good of faithfulness of the, of the husband and wife. And that can be achieved at any age, whether or not they're even capable of giving life. That doesn't take away from the fact that the primary essential purpose remains always to give life. And any act that would render that null and void and, and turn the, the act of human intercourse into an act of pure selfishness uh, for pure gratification and to nullify God's will, that it be capable of giving life, is intrinsically evil. This is the church's teaching. Paul VI did not make that clear, because in, in uh, Humanae Vitae, he did not say that the primary essential purpose of this act and, and of marriage itself is to give life. And the secondary essential purpose is the mutual comfort, support, faithfulness of husband and wife. He simply stated that there were two purposes, and he named them. <laughs> this was a grave omission. So that simply saying there are two purposes led to their inversion with the new code of canon law of John Paul II, <laughs> and that they can be almost made equal and even opposite where one can be kind of put against the other and say, then we have a right to choose one or the other. And uh, this, this means that one can choose to exercise the, uh, you know, marital, marital relations, even outside of marriage. One can do it purely and simply for the sake of gratifying oneself, one's spouse, and render life uh, and nullify the life-giving power. And when you do that, you establish the principle 
that justifies every every conceivable and inconceivable perversion, saying that this act can be uh, primarily, even exclusively, about one's own personal gratification. Period. That that's what it's for. You just you say that, then as long as somebody can say, "Hey, listen, this gratifies me," and that's what it's for. So how can anybody object? That's the whole purpose. Well, if you acknowledge that in principle, you've just opened the door to every perversion, well, as they say, imaginable, and that's what they've done. Now, and um, then now here we are, right? Here we are with homosexuality considered almost to be uh, an ideal in some circles, a badge of honor, right? Transgenderism now to have taken over the schools, the, the government schools, and, uh, and on and on and on. And you wonder, how have we come to this? The answer is very simple. We established the principles, and now the conclusions are coming at us with a vengeance. You know? hmm. Well, Father, why, uh, why do you think it is that amongst Novus Ordo Catholics now, there is such a wide variety of viewpoints on this matter? You know, you've, uh, you've, you've said this before, where if you question every... Novus Ordo Catholic, as they came out of the church, they would give you a different answer on, on basic tenets of, of what they thought was the Catholic faith. But amongst Novus Ordo Catholics now, you see so many different opinions and, and viewpoints. You know, the church, Novus Ordo Church, uh, as far as I understand, their position on uh, birth control, abortion, these things, is that they're still immoral. And yet, so many Novus Ordo Catholics, they still have, they have no problem with them. They'll, they'll do them. So many Novus Ordo Catholics will admit to using contraception, artificial birth control, many Novus Ordo Catholics will have abortions. Yeah. Why is that? Those are all modernists. They don't even know it, but they're all modernists. I mean, they all have the idea that I have my own personal faith experience. I have my own personal faith experience, and my own personal faith experience says, this is fine, or this isn't fine, you know, depending on how I feel about it. So even the, the Novus Ordo, the, the conservative Catholics who, who say, you know, I'm against artificial contraception because the church says it's, it's not it's not acceptable. Um, you know, that's his own personal faith experience, though. And in the Novus Ordo, he can't really be out there saying, well, you're not Catholic unless you accept that, because, I mean, look what happened after Humanae Vitae came out. I already talked about this once. We already discussed this. After Humanae Vitae came out, uh, 40, 40 priests of the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C., signed a statement, a public statement, challenging it. And it was actually flung in the face of the Archbishop uh, O'Boyle. They said, we are not going to follow Humanae Vitae. We are going to still teach that artificial birth control is fine. Period. And Cardinal O'Boyle did what a, a real, maybe became Cardinal O'Boyle, uh, he, he did what any prelate of the church would, would do, any ordinary bishop of the diocese. He immediately suspended them. He said, you cannot function as priests in my diocese. He didn't throw them out in the street. I mean, he still had a place to live. They had food on the table, you know. He was still going to provide for them. But they could not function as priests in the diocese. And uh, they did what all the uh, good... Modernist priests did, right? They appealed to Rome. 
against what uh, O'Boyle had done. And this is the really, this really tells you now, this really tells you how things were going and how things were going to go in the modernist church of Vatican II, Paul VI, and his successors. Uh, Paul VI, who had issued the encyclical of Humanae Vitae, which these priests were openly defying and professing they were not going to follow, Paul VI upheld them. Paul VI wrote to the bishop, O'Boyle, and told him to reinstate those priests and let them continue to practice as priests and represent the Catholic Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. And so O'Boyle was ordered by the very pontiff of the Novus, who brought in the Novus Ordo, Paul VI, to uphold the defiance of his own encyclical, of his own order. So, I mean, no wonder the Catholic people were absolutely bewildered by all this, right? And I mean, the priests who were trying to be Catholic, this is what was done to them, too. I mean, they were left... I mean, it was, a man, it was like a madhouse. It was living... It was like the Manhatter's Tea Party. <laughs> and uh, this, this wrought havoc in the faith of the people and the clergy. I mean, no wonder tens of thousands of priests left the priesthood under these circumstances. You know? So this is, the, this is what was going on back then, the late 60s, early 70s. So um, in any case... Um, <laughs> You know, you, you, you look at that and you, you see there was something uh, greatly, greatly wrong, you know, going on in the Vatican. Um, the voice that was speaking for the Vatican was uh, not the voice of the shepherd, certainly. And how confusing and demoralizing it was for the Catholic people back then. And again, we're living, we're living now with the consequences of that. A generation and more has gone by since then that has lived with this chaos, right? And, um, well, that kind of tells you the, the, the mentality that went into Humanae Vitae expressed itself when the first great challenge was made and the answer that was given by Paul VI, it was actually designed to be unclear and to breed chaos, and that's exactly what it did. Exactly. Father, we've got two minutes left. Could you give us any advice uh, for this uh, Advent season? You want me to say something in two minutes? That's, two minutes. That's quite a challenge. <laughs> so. Well, here we are at the beginning of the Advent season, of course, and we recognize the need to prepare ourselves. I mean, it's a time of preparation, right? But the time of preparation is not only to celebrate a past event, the coming of our Lord long ago and far away. We are being prepared to celebrate the coming of our Lord on the altar and his continued, you might say, incarnation as he was incarnate, became incarnate in the womb of our Blessed Mother. He continues in a sense that not only the incarnation on the altar at every Mass, but also the sacrifice is perpetuated. Not his death, but the sacrifice by his divine presence on the altar. We should be prepared to, to be present at the Holy Mass of Christmas and appreciate that, the significance of his continued presence there and the love that motivates him to be there. That's the, that's the amazing thing. 
you know. When the priest stands at the altar and he has the host there lying on the corporal, and he even picks it up and he holds it in his fingers, and he looks in the chalice, and there he sees the, the precious blood and realizes that God's love comes to this. It's astounding, you know. But that's the greatness of God's love, that it comes to this in order to be united with us even here in this life, in this world. Um, it's something that we really need to ponder. But the Church also teaches us that we are meant to look even beyond time to the coming of our Lord finally in, in, the, in the end of the world. And that's why we begin Advent by reading the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 21, about the events surrounding the end of the world and the advice that St. Luke gives, that our Lord gives us through St. Luke. When you see these things come to pass, the rest of the world will be mourning you and in shock all around you that the party's over. But you look up, lift up your heads, and you rejoice because your redemption is at hand. This is what will be done by those who love our Lord and are faithful to him. So the church bids us to look forward to that. That's why, am I two minutes yet? <laughs> right that's, that's why, oddly enough, the Saturday before Christmas, the, the epistle that is read every year is Second Thessalonians chapter 2 about the coming of the Antichrist. Of all times to read that, the Saturday before Christmas Day, year by year, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 about the coming of the Antichrist. Why does the church do that? Why does she put that before us at a time like that? Precisely because it has to do with the ultimate coming of our Lord in power and glory to judge mankind. His ultimate triumph, okay? So that's what we have to see in this child, you know. We, in the New Testament, have the vantage point of looking back to his actual coming. And uh, we also have the ability to recognize his presence on the altar at the Mass, but we also look forward to the coming of our Lord in, in his power and his majesty. And this will be a great vindication of all of those who love him and have been faithful to him because they have recognized and they appreciate his love for them. This is what we need to do during this Advent season. Father, thanks for being here tonight. God bless you. You're very welcome, Tom. Thank you. Yep. Um, thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.